3: Hello everybody, Chris here. Just a reminder that this episode was recorded pre-lockdown, back when we could all be in a room together. And second reminder that this season episodes are coming weekly. So today we've got an interview episode and next Thursday we will have Homo Sapiens Extra Lockdown
0: Extended Edition. Enjoy listening. I was... uh the Grand Marshal of San Francisco Pride. And it was during the time of um, Bush and he was trying to amend the Constitution of America to make it that marriage only between a man and a woman. And I wore a T-shirt that said, amend yourself, Bush. (laughs) (laughs) Hello, everybody. I'm Alan Cumming. I'm Christopher Sweeney. And this is... Homo sapiens. sapiens, the podcast. The podcast. This week's very exciting because um, one of the most lovely men in the whole world, a huge LGBT icon, pioneer and uh, chronicler yes. is being interviewed. He's also a dear friend of mine and I'm not actually interviewing him because I can't remember why I wasn't available or something, was I?
3: So you weren't available, yeah. So, or in um, fact, <clears throat> or other version is... You, this actually interview was done before you officially joined the podcast. Oh, so it's just going to be you? Well, it was just he was
0: around because he because he was in, he was promoting his show. So oh, the um the, the, the reboot of uh, or the re, the twenty five years later of oh, uh, tales of the tales of the city. Of the city I see, I get um, it. Um, but Armistead, but, who is so gone, I was going to say the. Last time I saw Armistead, he was I have to a picture. I'm sitting on a sofa right now, or a little sort of camp bed, and he was sitting right here in this room with my mum. My mum and Armistead have become this hilarious friends. Mary Darling. Mary Darling and Armstead, they love each other, yeah. Really? Yeah. She met him in San Francisco and and she and she was talking about his memoir. She goes, Oh, I'm longing to read Armistead's memoir, Alan. I was like, Oh my god, I'm (laughs) nervous about letting you see that. She loved it. Really? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Armistead's memoir is um Punchy, right? Uh, punchy? Yeah. It's really fascinating because it's about someone who has done in his life a huge vault fast. Like he was a closeted Republican mm. pro-Vietnam. All these things. He went in this doc there's a really great documentary about him. And in the documentary they actually uncover they find the tapes. Of him talking to Nixon, in the White House, and uh, it's just—and he—he's from the South, and he's you know, you know, he's from the Deep South, from like, sort of wealthy, tradition. Uh, You know, there's a certain things he did. There's a really fascinating thing Mm. that he had a little like when the Vietnam War started. Mm -hmm. I think. Or was it just in general? Anyway, anyway, he had a little, you know, some people have got a little kind of tailbone, little extra bit. Oh, yeah. Sticking out on their, where we used to have tails. Your coccyx. Yeah, mm-hmm. he had little lumpy coccyx. Mm-hmm. And so his parents, and he agreed to it, got that removed so that it would not impede him um, going into the into the military. Wow. See, that's what we're talking. You know what I mean? That's the kind of background we're talking.
3: Do you ever? Um, I remember when I got to the age of about twenty-eight, and I was like, "Ah, oh, it means if there was a war, I wouldn't be called up now." Why? Because I don't mm-hmm. think they ask you if you're that
0: old. Oh, I see. Oh, really? Oh, I see. It, I think uh, they age. Oh, hmm. do they? Oh. I remember when um, the Falklands War started, and they wouldn't, uh, and they wouldn't, um, they weren't releasing passports. You couldn't change your passport, and there was like there was talk of um, national service coming back in. You're kidding me. No, it was really scary. I was at drama school. I thought, oh, "Crikey."
3: You know, I'm in rehearsal for a check Well, my dad was born in 1932, so he was older when he had me. He had me age 50. And He's not old. He was. Pitch. He was. <laughs> he was older when he had me as a kid. And he. Um, so he did. Uh, Watch Macaulay. Um, National service. National service. Right. So he was in the RAF for three years, <clears throat> age right. eighteen, and he he was um, he was a pianist. That's what he loved, and so he started. A band. He was called Frank Sweeney, but he started a band called Frank Sway, which was like the uh, <laughs> the jazz band in for the RAF. So he said he never had to do any work because he was always asked to go and play piano in like the officer's mess oh, and stuff. Fantastic. Isn't that
0: cool? Yeah, that's cool. I was like, that's how I would have survived the army had I been enlisted. So, cool. didn't mean, uh, so Armist- and has Armist- got quite a lot to say about that because he went to Vietnam and... Uh, yeah. All sorts. Did you have a lovely time with him? I really
3: did. And um, he has moved he's such a quintessentially American person but has now moved to London. Mm -hmm. And we had such a funny conversation because he now lives near he lives in Clapham, which is southwest London, but is a bit of a gay area of London and Mm. is where when I had one of my first gay experiences was at the Two Brewers Pub. Oh yes. With a guy whose name I cannot remember. Met him, really fancied him, took me back to his
0: flat. Oh, that you had the experience in the Two brothers. Sorry, yes. It started, two it started at the Two It started at the Tube Where did you he live? Hendon. Oh, for goodness sakes. Where's that? North, north London. Oh, like the furthest you could possibly go from Clapham.
3: So, it, so clearly I went all the way from Clapham to Hendon. Did you go all the way the, when you got to Hendon? In the attempt of a shag. Well, this was the problem. Because A, he was bonkers. Um, but that that was fine because I was like 21. I surely the Hendon should have been a clue. <laughs> well, yeah, uh, there was there were many clues, but I was 21, so I was incapable of noticing them. Um, and when we arrived mm. in Hendon, having done a 45-minute cab journey, he was like, oh, I don't have my keys to my house. Oh, for God's sake. I was trying, it's 4 a.m., I'm trying to get a shag here. So then he decided that he would shimmy up the side of his block of flats to climb in the window and he used do you know down the side of a building they have a thing called a lightning conductor?
0: Yes. I'm he, an intelligent
3: ha- person. So well as an I didn't <laughs> I didn't know that was one there were anyway, so he used that. He held onto that and climbed up the building. But when he got halfway up the building, the lightning conductor <laughs> started to Go pop pop pop, and he started coming off the wall. Oh my god! And I was like, "He's gonna fucking die, and I'm gonna be." I'm him. still not gonna get my shag. Anyway, then cut a long story short. He then jumped down. Somehow, he got into the building. How did I get the shag? Is the question.
0: No, no, no. First of all, how did you get? You can't just say he fell I don't off the building. Remember, and... But it was
3: something to do with he found another way up to an open window in his flat. Oh my god! Did
0: you get a shag? Yeah. Oh, well. it wasn't great though. Well. He was probably exhausted after climbing up the bloody wall, like shags Spider-Man. A, shag's a shag in my
3: book. <laughs> now. Um, Even bad sex is quite good. It's, but exactly. Um, <laughs> any port in a storm. Hendon, to Anyway, so that was, that's all I've got to say about Armistead Maupin. How beautifully, wonderfully poetic of me. But what I do have something to say about is that you wonderful listeners write into us every week and you tell us your agony uncle questions. Agony <coughs>
0: uncle. Agony uncle. So I think we should do a few of those. Let's now, do it. Alan, um, would you like to kick us off? Yes. I've got a question from someone who wrote in. It says, what do I say to a parent who won't understand that some people want to be called they? Change is difficult Mm -hmm. for everyone. Mm -hmm. There's a resistance to, in some people's minds, to change Mm -hmm. uh, and to the norm and to the old guard. Mm. And I think it's, it's actually... No it's not really about they. It's about people not being able to accept that things are changing mm-hmm. and they have to they have to embrace them. So I think it's yeah. more you have to come at it from a different angle.
3: And and misunderstand and I sometimes I feel like it's got something to do with people don't <clears throat> like that they might have been wrong in the past. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like,
0: fine, just say, okay, I didn't know, move on. Um, Absolutely. I think that's in politics. And people, you know, The attitudes have changed, things change, laws change.
3: Yeah, you've got to be able to say, okay, cool, things have moved on and I'm sorry. And I, I look, I'll give an example. So, for example, in music, directing music videos, which I did for a long time, like a lot of alcohol on set was just a normal thing. Really? And I think that now I would say uh, I would absolutely not allow that. Because, no You know But that's just a total It was a total norm And it was It's probably it, On photo shoots as well Like people being Drinking all day And stuff Like I've yeah. seen that happen a lot
0: Gosh, Gosh Wow well,
3: We never get any booze On this
0: podcast do we <laughs> Well, lucky if I can We rustle. can look longingly At the Arbiki Yeah On my shelf Brother, I, I just, So I just think Actually talking to uh, Parents It's more about Just saying How do you want to be How would, How do you want to be um, Defined And um, Named Mm Tell me how you'd like to be. You know, are you a white old boar or are you uh, a middle-aged nice person? Or, you, yeah. know, just, you know, just it's, it's as simple as that. And however someone else wants to be defined, it's our duty as as fellow human beings to give them that respect. And yes. and, and, and 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 also we can make mistakes, but just yeah. don't get don't be pissed off that someone's changed how they want to be defined. No. You know, we've got better things to be doing. With it's like time. when people get people get, you know, think about it when people get married and they change their name. It's mm-hmm. the same thing. Yeah. And no one gets cross about that. Yeah. Go, is it your turn? Uh, go on, then. I've got one. Emma I think the thing. You've got the thing. M writes, my Scottish fiancé refuses to wear his kilt to our civil ceremony. Please advise.
1: <clears throat>
0: is that a thing? What do you mean? Is that a thing? Was that bad? Well, here's the thing. Um, I don't think your Scottish fiancée has to wear his kilt if he doesn't want to. No. You know, just because you're from Scotland doesn't mean you have to wear a kilt. And actually, the thing about kilts, let me give you a little historical... Uh...
3: Aren't they actually French or something?
0: No. Oh. But the, the thing about tartans is mm. that, the, the, you know, Scottish people used to wear these rappy things. Mm. Kilts, uh, as we know them now, were kind of... Um, modified from those old wrappy things mm-hmm. so that we could uh, work in factories during the Industrial Revolution. The tartans wow. we all wear were chosen for us by the London, the Scottish Society of London when George the Something went to Scotland to meet all the clan chiefs and, and, and each one was given to a different clan chief. And sometimes when people think, oh, I've got this great ancient connection with one other clan. No, it's not, because they run out and they just give people the same one. <laughs> so, so, um, yeah. So I think the thing is, Uh, I love wearing a kilt, I think it's great. I don't think I have to wear a kilt at weddings. It's nice to, I like it. But if he doesn't want to, Mm -hmm. um, you don't have to. He's not a performing poodle. Mm, Absolutely not.
3: Now, um, uh, I should probably say, because I haven't said it for about four episodes, if you are having struggles, we're not professionals, you should also seek professional (laughs) help. I
0: think... (laughs) I think if you didn't realise that we are not professional um, psychologists... and you don't you know. Ha-
3: People hang off your every word. You don't understand this. <laughs> Haven't you seen the comments on your Instagram? Now, speaking
0: of hanging off every single word, let's listen to Armistead Mopin. Darling, do it. darling Armistead. Or Teddy, as he's known in his family.
3: Oh. Tell me
0: about the time, because
3: Ian McKellen came to you and said, should I come out? Didn't he?
1: Yeah, he did. So how did that come about? I think Ian had been... Seriously considering it all along, and wanted a little support in that way. And my uh, partner at the time and I were more than willing to give him our opinion. You know, you were friends prior to that, Mm -hmm. Uh,
3: and he was in the closet publicly.
1: Yes, I mean Ian was led a pretty open life. People knew it professionally, but he didn't. He never talked about it. He didn't. I see. He didn't avoid (laughs) the subject, but. But then. He didn't bring it up.
3: And contextually, then, was obviously a big thing, but also, did that sort of then make you an activist? Do you sort of have to then wear Me? it every day? No, if someone came out in public life like Ian.
1: Oh, that's, what, that's often the fear that I'll have to be an activist. Really? No. But, sorry, that's what happens. Mm-hmm. That happened to Ellen DeGeneres. She said the very same thing. Really? I don't want to be an activist. Well, mm-hmm. once you're out and you're. And, and vulnerable to the uh, public's opinion of you mm-hmm. you you start getting indignant about yeah. the difference in the way you're treated you yes. know yeah and uh, and Ellen in her own way is a big activist mm. just by who she puts on that show Mm, totally yeah and also I think there's an there's a
3: sort of there's a benign version of activism which is just being around
1: just Being around and being gay, and just well, I've always been a member of that club.
3: Well, I think that I
1: think what you can do is just be ordinary about it in
3: public. And that's what I think people always connected with about your stories is it was it was it was gay, straight, everybody all mixed in together. And I think that's what I find interesting is people go, "What's gay life like?" And you go, "Mostly
1: straight people." Yeah. Getting in my way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's been really my call to arms all along. Just mm. be yourself and get on with it. That's all I've done, really. I don't I don't consider myself an activist in mm. the sense that I've taken to the streets a lot. Mm, that's really interesting, yeah. Uh, but I think what I've done is insisted on the my visibility. Mm. In the early days when I did press, I'd be off on a ramble with a reporter and telling some queer story and they'd say, of course I won't put that in. Really? That's they were hysterical. censoring me on the spot. And, and I said, no, I'm, I said that to you because I want you to put it in. I mm. want you to say that.
3: One thing that I remember w- was when you said publicly about Rock Hudson and that he was gay. And th- that caused a stir, did it? But you
1: felt Among it had Among certain people. yeah. But you felt it had to be said? That was no question it had to be said. Mm. Uh, First of all, he was clearly a man with AIDS and it wasn't gonna be around very long Mm. and I wasn't going to keep silent about Mm. how he got that. Mm, mm. uh, Because I had lost so many friends, Mm. myself. Mm. Very brave people who'd been openly gay and dealing with the prejudice. Most of all, I knew that the world would be kindlier to rock if somebody spoke intelligently about what sort of man he was Mm. and honestly they were lying ross hunter his producer was lying and talking about watermelon diets and things and liver cancer liver cancer just Mm. ridiculous panicked responses Mm. and i i just i didn't i couldn't take it and rock uh ended up sending his biographer to meet me. He said, you were the first person I should talk to. So really? I, I realized that he understood what I had done and mm. why I had done it. But a lot of queers didn't. Really? Um, thought it was a betrayal because there was still that code of secrecy. You, mm-hmm. must not, you must not spell the spill the secret. You know, if you were lucky enough to know a movie star then you were supposed to keep quiet about it. Mm. And I didn't sign on for that.
3: And did you talk to him about it ever before, saying, you know?
1: I, uh, yeah, I did uh, when we first met. I said, you know, if you told your story, it would make a huge difference in the world. And, mm. and he was kind of fascinated by the idea. Really? Uh, but his partner, Tom Clark, said, not until my mother dies. <laughs> and all I could think of was if I was fucking Rock Hudson. <laughs> which I tried briefly, uh, <laughs> I would be happy to tell my mother about it. And she would probably be happy for me. She'd be over the moon, eh? <laughs> <laughs> It just didn't compute with me that there should be shame around that. Um, we interviewed Nicky
3: Haslam, who I don't know if you've ever encountered him. Do you know him? Mm-hmm. Sort of British socialite. Who is an incredible man? Um, but he he said, you know, I'll, I talking just you were saying about that secrecy thing. You know, he said, oh, it's so boring being gay now because everybody knows. And what I loved was that it was secret, and you could
1: you went to these places. That tiresome old thing mm. about Gore Vidal thought it was much more fun mm, when mm. when you could go and seduce straight men. Still, mm, ah, right. who cares? I really. So um, his treatment, right? Well, the, the idea was you could talk them into it before we had defined queer or see. defined gay. Right. Uh, it was just buddies having a good time with each other. Well, that's a lovely fantasy, but... Um, yeah. If you're sucking a cock, you're sucking a cock. I don't need to, you know, the <laughs> niceties of that. Yeah. He wasn't, by the way, Gore. He once invited me to lunch at uh, Musso and Frank in Hollywood. Oh, really? We'd met a couple times, I'd done a story on him, and he wanted me to know, basically, that he was a top. Really? That he'd never gone down on anybody, <laughs> and he'd never been fucked. Wow. And I thought he was trying out his memoir on me, basically. Right, right, right. But I thought, well, do you think there are medals for that? <laughs> what a tragic story, that's the worst thing I've ever heard.
3: But isn't that something to do with, don't people like to be a top so that they think it's less gay in some way. Oh yeah, they, they do. There we go. What are you doing while
1: you're in London? What's have you got other plans? Uh, We're moved. We've moved here. Oh really? Where are you living? Uh, well, we, we've si- We've just had a, signed a contract mm-hmm. for a house in Clapham South.
3: I love Clapham.
1: Clapham Old Town and all of that bit. Have you been there? Yeah, we have. We, we did a little exploring before we looked at this house. Um, we went to two brewers. The two oh brewers. Oh my god! <laughs> Isn't it amazing? Yeah, I think we're going to like it. Well, I like the absence of traffic on those side streets, which is where we are. Oh, okay, yeah. And all the Georgian architecture—is it all that bit? Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah.
3: It's kind of... and and the common, big time. It's great. You got Our any... dog loved it. I was going to say, if you got animals? <laughs> yeah. What made you? Was it anything about? the gayness
1: of the area that made you choose it. I think it was a little of that. That's Chris, my husband, said, I think it's kind of a queer area. And I said, well, that would be nice. I didn't even know that was known, if you know what I mean. Um, yeah, it's listed in several articles about gayberhoods <laughs> And <laughs> so you've been to two breweries. I haven't
3: seen hordes of homosexuals yet. But I'll give you some I coordinates. <laughs> People aggressive homosexuals queuing for their coffee in, yeah, in the yeah. dairy in Clapham Old Town is a sight to behold. Let me tell you. But um,
1: did uh, what did you see at Two Brewers? Nothing, because it was four thirty in the afternoon. Oh, okay, fine. So I saw bartenders. We sat there and had a drink, but we hadn't been to see a show yet. It's not a big day, yeah, daytime venue.
3: God, I had some of my formative sexual, not sexual, gay experiences in Two Brewers because it was. It was the suburban answer to a gay bar, mm. you know, like because so because I, I grew up down the road, and uh, so we'd go there and see drag acts and stuff and all the rest of
1: it. It was it was quite incredible actually that it was around. I have an equivalent experience from San Francisco. Oh, really? Go on. Well, Charles oh. Pierce, who was a famous old drag queen in mm. the early seventies, yeah, appeared at a club there called Gold Street oh, yeah. and it was it just liberated me to the sight of this drag queen walking down this spiral staircase <laughs> answered all the questions I needed answered you're talking about the first time
3: you went to a gay bar in San Francisco and you said you walked in and people were slow dancing to Barbara Streisand mm-hmm. and you that was the-, the rendezvous uh, yes
1: and you thought get me the hell out of here yeah <laughs> it scared me to death now I would just kill to slow dance to and with my husband.
3: Well, do you know what, what struck me about that is that I remember my first gay experiences were much more into, the, you know, into the frying pan type thing. I was like, okay, this is, you know, no one ever, I never saw anyone slow dance. And when I heard you mm. say that, I was like, God, no one did that. It was like, it was about... Well,
1: well it was just beginning to be uncool. Really? Yeah. In what respect? Probably too intimate. Right. Gay men were learning to to shun that because they were supposed to be butch. So do you think
3: that's... Okay, because that's what I wanted to ask you. Is You've spoken a lot about intimacy, and I have been fascinated by what you've said. And do you think
1: that there was a period before where people were more intimate and then that moved away? I only know it mostly from old films that I've seen of mm. gay men. It, private gatherings where they're slow dancing in someone's living room. Mm. Um, and Kind of sweet, the thought of it, and the sight of it.
3: And do you, do you think that is, there's been a sort of butchification
1: then? Well, that happened in San Francisco in the 70s, yeah. And what, what was the trigger for that, if one can quantify it? I don't know. I don't know exactly. I know I was very much a part of it. I mean, I went out and bought the fuck me boots and the the Levi's and the flannel shirt and uh, yeah. got with the program. Yeah. And I kind of enjoyed that aspect of it because that was sexually attractive to me. Mm.
3: And is there an element of theater about that or is it to do with ultra-masculinity being attractive or something? I don't know.
1: Probably a little bit of
3: both. Mm. What I think is interesting when I talk on this podcast to a much younger generation than I, uh, is that I feel that people really forget so much of history. And people don't know who Harvey Milk is, for example. and. And, which is extraordinary. Well, there's been
1: an Oscar-winning movie made about him, so they're just idiots. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yes. But, um, you know, I, I kind of go, well, I have to listen to that, you know, and go, okay, well, so yeah, yeah, know, yeah. That, that is a fact. And I wanted to ask you to describe what it was like when you first went there uh, to San Francisco and what it felt like, because I don't think people know how extraordinary it was.
1: Well, the exhilaration of arriving in a place where you could be fully yourself. Mm. Uh, go to a bathhouse and have amazing experiences and hang around afterwards and eat a nine grain sandwich in front of a big TV set. <laughs> um, it was The bathhouses were everything. They were social centers, uh, mostly mazes with sex mm. and private rooms and for me it was a just it was an amazing discovery it I, I don't undervaluate ever the uh the importance of sex mm. in that in those early years at the bathhouses anonymous sex whenever you wanted it
3: um and what was what was the value and i don't mean that in a prim way as in just to expand on that
1: um well it it uh it taught you a lot of things about human nature. Mm-hmm. I figured out you could tell the difference between a bastard and a nice guy in the dark. Really? By the language of touch.
3: Because had-
1: Tenderness could come across from a stranger in a dark place.
3: Mm. Um,
1: and, uh, and I fell in love more than I should have over nothing. Yeah. I'd meet a guy at a bathhouse and love everything about him and then want to meet him for, lunch the next day or whatever funny. I, was, I was really quite tragic about that but I didn't know anything about uh, about how that worked you know I had repressed my sexuality for so long mm. uh, I didn't have any real experience with love
3: mm. so that
1: was always a mess the, the falling in love thing I did it too quickly and not well and I had to learn uh, do, and do
3: because I felt exactly the same when I f- first came out and went to gay clubs. I, in retrospect,
1: I just fell in love with everybody. It was like you were looking for a husband. Yeah, and so was I. Yeah, it only took me forty years to find him. <laughs> <laughs> and do, is that? I
3: yeah, because I sort of had to learn the terrain that, yeah. that that everybody was not like that, but I struggled with the random sex thing, and so did I. You did,
1: yeah. I thought if this is going to be all there is, mm. um, but then I had to really look at my own sexuality and realize I was having a hell of a good time doing mm. that, mm. and I didn't have to lock anybody down mm. uh, into a husband. Situation. Yeah. Uh, in order to find love. This was l- learned over many years. Yeah. I was depressed in the beginning with the idea that came in with just sexual gadabouts and, mm. and I would never find anybody who would be faithful. Faithful to me these days simply means the loyalty and love and support of my husband, mm. not whether or not he's gotten off with somebody else.
3: I feel like we're in gay 2.0, which is that the butchness thing we just spoke about and the uh, the um, monogamy thing is almost like trying to be like straight marriages, trying to be like straight couples yeah. in order to go. Okay, so we're all right, you know, we're okay. We're not, we're not too weird. Yeah. Uh, and and actually, there's a lot that straight people could learn from gay relationships and
1: absolutely. I think that every day, really? people in my life. Really. And I, th- I think, you don't want to hear it, mm. the sister I love so much mm. uh, is having a terrible time at whatever her age is, she's funny about it, but dating on Match.com. Oh God, right. And she's, she's like auditioning them all for the role of husband. And yes. I said, why don't you just get a good roll in the hay and enjoy that? <laughs> um which she's been known to do right forgive me jane if you're listening to this <laughs> um, but, but um part of her is still very much a southern belle who's locked into the notion of this is the way it'll be and mm. i don't think she'd be any more happy than i would be with a totally monogamous situation mm. i'm not a i'm not a, a you know a whorehound, mm. by any stroke of the imagination. I'm seventy-five, for God's sakes, and mm. so it's just not. The urge isn't there, and mm. when I do get it up for a marathon sex thing with my husband, mm. usually, sometimes we share. Mm. Um, it takes a lot of equipment. <laughs> it takes a shot in my cock, for oh, really? God's sakes. <laughs> but it's worth it because you're a dildo for 2 hours. Hey,
3: listen, whatever. And there's gets nothing you. like that. No, exactly. Um yeah.
1: So it's, you know, it's a it's a more complicated procedure yeah. to to be a you know, a slut. Mm. But it's <laughs> it's worth it. Yeah. And my wonderful husband understands how to make it fun.
3: Yeah. Just going back a bit to what you were just saying then about one of the things I adore about you and I know a lot of people do is this idea of telling the truth. And that takes a lot of effort, you know, um, all the time. And I wondered how you became that person because I know that you you kind of maybe weren't originally.
1: Um. No, I was a real little tight ass. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, I was in the closet for a long time yeah. too. Mm. Posing is something that I wasn't. Um, and then I realized that it worked. Telling the truth works. Mm. You don't have to keep track of what your lies. Mm. And uh, when you're in my business, both as a writer and a public person, um, that's important. And that yields benefits. People like it. Mm. If you admit the worst about yourself, somebody always says, "I'm that's so funny. I do that myself. I never thought." They admire you for for doing that.
3: Yeah, I think it's that to do with this idea that we think our problems are unique, and they're just not. They're not. <laughs> they're so universal. I tell this
1: story about my that my sister made happen. Um, she told me once that her mother-in-law had was so ashamed of herself during gynecological examinations that she took a bag to wear on her head. Really? During the when she was in the stirrups, she'd put a bag. And I said, was it the same bag every time? Was it a, like a paper bag? I need details. Or did she have a did she have an embroidered thing you know, like a head cozy? And Jane could see me working up to this, and she said, you are not going to write about this. <laughs> so I agreed that I wouldn't, and then I went right ahead and did it. I, <laughs> I scribed the practice to a, a aunt of a character in my novel, Maybe the Moon. And I was in Raleigh, my sister's hometown, my mm. hometown, mm. and I uh, was doing readings, and that was a very popular passage, had been on the tour. Yeah, and And I didn't realize until I was halfway through the story that um, my sister was in the audience with with her mother-in-law. <laughs> oh, my gosh. And so I went, I plowed on through it. I told the bag story. And and uh, afterwards, I went up to, to Jane and said, I'm so sorry. I really didn't mean to embarrass you. And <clears throat> what did she say? Mm. And she said, oh, she was fine. When you got to that point, she just leaned over in my ear and whispered, you see somebody else does it too. That's amazing. And that's the that's the right in a nutshell is the essence of writing mm. or my writing. Mm. Tell it, tell your story, and somebody else will do it too and be amazed that you uh, were on their wavelength. And how did you just going back to the very beginning
3: sort of Tales of the City and and just off what you just said there like how the first time you ever wrote anything to do with tales of the city was for um a newspaper and how many were commissioned was it 30 or 60 were commissioned at first
1: um i had to give them uh six weeks worth so that was 30 30 and
3: how do you identify what is a story from real life do you have a thing where you sort of see it and you go ah
1: yeah, I, I just I have that instinct. Really? I do it still, all the time. Um, and can you,
3: is it a feeling, like, or is it more analytical?
1: Well, I tend to an- anecdotalize everything in, in life. Yes. You know, I'll tell, ask my husband. <laughs> I've heard that one. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I do that. I sort of process stories. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. Uh, I'm going to start a new novel shortly. Oh, congratulations. Uh, that is uh, not a, a continuation of Tales, but mm. a sort of deep dive into the middle of it. Uh, and where Mona, my character Mona Ramsey, mm. in Baby Cakes, she ends up as the mistress of a great manor house in the Cotswolds.
3: Right, okay, cool.
1: And uh, I had said in a later book that she had died. And mm friends readers were just indignant and said you need more on Mona we don't know what happened to Mona so I'm gonna do a book about Mona in the late great. 80s great and her involvement in the clause uh, 28 battle and is that
3: always been in your mind or is it you kinda go okay well I need this and you need to piece?" No, it that anyway. that was recent really
1: that was recent and I put two and two together. I mean, a lot of people have commented about it they wanted more on her, mm. and I thought, I'd really like to do that. I'd like to go back in time and and explore that.
3: Did I, you find with discussions around the new tales, which I thought was utterly brilliant, by the way, so I... I oh, I'm I so, so glad all, you like, you've seen it all? I've seen episode one, and I just was seeing her come over that bridge was so exciting yeah, to just is, go... Yeah, it uh, How did you feel seeing that for the first time?
1: I, I I knew what was coming, of course, but yeah. I, uh, a lot of things came together in mm. that. Just Laura, seeing Laura there, yeah. knowing how many things she can communicate yeah. in a scene with just her eyes, her expression.
3: She's extraordinary, yeah. isn't she?
1: She's I, one of the great actresses, and she's ours. I mean, as long <laughs> as we want to do this thing, she's yeah. going to be there. I just, she
3: makes it look so incredibly simple, and uh, it's not. Yeah. <laughs> you know yeah. um,
1: she's amazing and I and I I'm um, so happy that it still feels like tales. really yeah
3: mm. and because did you I actually think this is a bit of a glib question but people love it in terms of you know when people say why now to do something they go why now and I never myself truly know the answer um, but did you have any of those like what you know what were the things that were coming up about now and what it is to be queer now, because it is so incredibly different. Did you talk a lot
1: about that? Yeah, I know that the writers' room did. It mm. was discussed, um, and everyone agreed that uh, that an intergenerational thing would be interesting. Mm. Explaining yourself to young people and vice versa. Yeah, it's great. Um, we've got intergenerational sex in several instances in this thing. You don't know what what I'm talking about yet, but yes. you will.
3: Okay, good.
1: And. Um, And the whole complication of a trans man Mm. who's identifying as a man now and Mm. taking testosterone Mm. for it, uh, who's falling out of sexual love with his lesbian Mm. girlfriend, heartbreaking in a way. It's about them learning to love each other and Mm. let each other go.
3: I I thought that was one of the most touching moments and the intergenerational trans conversation, you know, which I thought was... Yeah, Anna and Jake. Yeah, it was just incredible to see. I have never seen that. And um, and it was just dealt with really beautifully. Yeah, and they,
1: they really... That was something I introduced 10 years ago when I brought Jake in, mm. because somebody had to take care of Anna, mm. I realized. Mm. I moved her out of Barbary Lane uh, mm. because the steps were just going to be too much for her, I decided, mm. in the novels. yes. Uh, we had to have Barbie Lane back yes. in the series. We had to. And we all got so excited about it. Seeing it again, it was like returning home. Just on the,
3: the new series and, and what's... What did you find that you were so most struck with about how different it was to portray queer life uh, based on the stories that are in you know, the new series? How is it Different. Well yeah, I was just interested by you know, I love the conversation at the beginning where they're saying, you know, they didn't they didn't know that we were queer. And I just thought that was oh, yeah. so now, you know?
1: Yeah. And yeah. to have that argument.
3: Yeah. And how do you feel about that kind of stuff?
1: Well, um, in my own life Yeah. I love it when somehow or other the word husband comes up mm-hmm. when Chris and I are in public mm. because that feels to me like both a political act mm. and a romantic one. Mm. I still feel the need to, to bear witness to a joyful queer life, mm-hmm. me of me, I don't know. I enjoy it.
3: <laughs> and do you, what do you, if you have an opinion, do you think about 19-year-old queer kids today do you think they're lucky do you think they're just obsessed with Instagram do you think
1: I think they're 19 (laughs) you know I don't want to judge myself at that age and I'm not going to judge them in any way Mm. Um, yeah some people are obsessed with Instagram and it's a crashing bore Mm. as we sort of illustrate (laughs) in the series Um, yeah I don't I'm not fond of uh you know the kardashian culture Mm. i don't know there are 19 year olds out there right now who are bright intelligent people who are openly gay and and living their lives and i salute them Mm. i love to meet them i do meet them
3: i'm thinking about your activism and do you think the next generation are continuing that enough
1: I don't know. what <laughs> I don't mm. know what the answer to that is. No. Enough what is enough, you know? Uh, I suppose what I'm thinking ulti- is... Ultimately, mm. the only responsibility is to yourself. That's what I've always felt. You really? Know, and then you will be part of a movement if you are honestly yourself mm. and abandoning your fears about being queer.
3: And just... I suppose that comes back to truth, doesn't it? Yeah. Of just be your own thing. Yeah. represent that it's been
1: my only message from the beginning it's why I was and am still obsessed with uh, closet cases
3: <laughs> really
1: that's the that's the least thing you can do if you're a queer is just be mm. happy and open about it
3: you said something lovely about that where you said you know I've 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 worked out how to say what I want with sex I think, was it that yeah
1: yeah if you if you trust the person you're with if you're yeah. with the right person you can both do that and have some great fireworks.
3: Do you think there's a link between that and the sort of the quick and emotionless sex that can be in the gay bars and all of that, that people aren't really doing intimacy? They're no, just... they
1: aren't. And that intimacy is a great addition to sex.
3: And, and why isn't that happening, do you think? Um, I don't know. Mm. And what held you back from saying what you wanted for so long?
1: Maybe not being with the right person. I don't know. Mm-hmm. It's it's like, uh, it's hard to acknowledge whatever you want sexually exactly. Yes.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: I think everybody has some problem with that.
3: Oh, I totally agree. Um, and, I, and I think it's not spoken about enough.
1: Well, I'm with the, one of the more sexually um, sophisticated men on the planet. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds weird, but but he understands all of those things. He, right. He, Your husband? He started, yeah, yeah, Daddy Hunt. Which is how you met, hey? Yeah, kind of. I saw him on Daddy Hunt and then met him on the street. So you chased after him in the street, is that right? Well, I it been changed. I, <laughs> Excuse me. <And> yeah, I...
3: <laughs> I heard you were screaming down the, <laughs> down I, the castro. I, I,
1: I, I, we both turned. We did the little stop and twirl thing yes. that was so popular in the 70s and 60s and any other time, I guess.
3: So if you pass someone on the street and you... You turn and
1: look, and if they're looking at you, then...
3: They were queer as well. That's a signal, Yeah. yeah. I love that.
1: And uh, and it was great that, I, of course, I said the dumbest thing in the world. Mm. Uh, Didn't I see you on a website? <laughs> <laughs> and, and But it turned out to be very effective because Chris here ran we the website. I would say so he was thrilled that I very proud. had been on that website. And also,
3: here we are, however many years later. But what I loved was the detail that you... Saw him on the website, but you printed it out and stuck it on your wall. Because you... I did. You, love, you thought he was so handsome. I thought
1: he was so handsome and I put him up there to taunt my younger friends because he really? specified that he only liked men that were 45 or older.
3: And, and through that relationship, I, I loved hearing you talk about um, how he made you feel great about yourself in a way that you yeah. never had felt before.
1: Well, the, in my in my antiquity, <laughs> <laughs> it, it, there's nothing like, and it's amazing, it's a lot of young men are embarrassed to say that they like older guys. Mm. Uh, and he sort of broke through that for everybody. We're constantly meeting couples on the street that say, uh, we met through Daddy Hunt. A mm. couple of friends of Ian's.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, really? At Ian the McKellen. pub the other night, Yeah. yeah.
1: Um, regular members of the, the the quiz night at the Grapes, you know, oh, Ian's yeah. pub. There.
3: Yes, yes. Uh,
1: they met. Because uh, of Clear Prince, Daddy Hunt. Really? Yeah. And uh, we hear it all the time. I, there's many people that thank Chris for opening their eyes about that as thank me about my books. Well, that's
3: because they both come back to truth, don't they? Yeah. You spoke the truth, people came. Chris spoke the truth. I
1: remember looking at his site. Yeah. And there'd be a picture of a, a paunchy man, you know. And Chris, and Chris, who wrote the captions, would say, Look at this hot daddy, mm-hmm. you know. And I'd look at it and think, Well, that's, well that doesn't seem to be hot to me. <laughs> <laughs> he taught me how to look at other older guys. Yeah. Uh, and appreciate it.
3: And I don't, I just, I don't feel there's any room for that anywhere in, when you say, you know, Instagram's dull, but it's so homogenous the way people, that I find that gay people look today. And I think gay men have this idea of being like this muscly, topless thing. I love, you're not on Instagram, are you?
1: I am. Oh, you are? I don't have any muscly, topless, (laughs) whatever that is. (laughs) But <laughs> I. I uh, shirtless, you know. Like
3: yeah. I always love on Instagram to go back, to scroll back to the time when they became. When they were
1: g- little geeks. And
3: yeah, you know, you can always see there's like a, a box of about nine pictures where they become the sort of. Oh, okay, I'm going to make my Instagram a proper Instagram now. Right. Where it's right. lots of pictures of me shirtless and it's going to be, you know. Yeah. I'm it's quite funny.
1: Vanity is never very attractive, really. No, Um,
3: it really isn't.
1: Even even if they've got something, they've got the goods, Mm. the fact that they're deliberately showing it to you is somehow less appealing.
3: The most attractive thing is them not knowing it.
1: Yeah, exactly.
3: That's what I adore about my husband, William, is that he's very handsome but he has no idea. (laughs) It's very interesting, isn't it?
1: Uh, That's a great quality. Yeah, it really is.
3: this is uh, a question that I wanted to ask you that you might not be able to answer, but uh, it doesn't matter. Um, who do you think, in terms of writing, is doing now what you did then, which was so extraordinary at the time?
1: Uh, they broke the mould when I... <laughs>
3: <laughs> Good,
1: yes. I don't, I don't know.
3: But is there anyone who you...
1: you know? I, I love... Do- uh, Andrew Sean Greer. Okay. Wrote a book that won the Pulitzer last mm-hmm. year called Less.
3: Oh yes. Yeah. I have it on oh, my bedside table. You it. have it there.
1: I, I'll read it cuz it's <laughs> wonderful. Just it's read about it. a gay writer. Yeah. and who's traveling the world mm. and uh, and it has a great several great jabs at the whole gay writer culture. Brilliant. Um, and he's a friend uh, and he's such a good guy that I don't feel even vaguely envious of his Pulitzer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I feel vaguely envious of his hot body, which I saw at Burning Man.
3: <laughs> you went to Burning Man. Twice. How was it?
1: Oh, it was wonderful. It's ex- I, I, again, it's one of those things in my life that wouldn't have happened without Chris. Cause mm. he, he got the RV in order and uh, you know, made costumes for us and mm. knew exactly how it worked.
3: What is it like, though? I have never been. Dusty. Mm-hmm.
1: Very <laughs> that's dusty. That's why we went. <laughs> it's hallucinatory. Uh, really? You feel like you're looking at some carnival on Mars. It's just amazing. Really?
3: And so what have you got planned next? What would you like to see? You're going to do your book?
1: I'm going to do my book. Mm-hmm. I've got a story that I have to write for Audible, which I think will be fun because I get to read it. I get to tell a story. Oh, wicked. Audible. Yeah. Um, but that's hope there's nothing else for a while. Mm.
3: And you're living here for the foreseeable? Yeah. Fantastic.
1: Buying antiques for the house in Clapham.
3: Brilliant. <laughs> Wonderful.
1: I, you'll let me know if that was a terribly bourgeois thing to do, won't you?
3: What, buying antiques for your house in Clapham? <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's a little bourgeois. Even as I say it, I feel that it is. <laughs> My early memories of London when I came here at 19 was suddenly mm. discovering queers in these antique malls, you know, and the and the, sh- the shopping yes. things, suddenly thinking, oh, my God, why are all these men looking at me? And really? Yeah, you could feel the energy.
3: So that was probably n- northwest London, wasn't it? Is that where all the Hampstead energy... Hampstead. Yes. Yeah, and- yeah, yeah. Well, now you've got two boroughs on your doorstep. Yeah. How exciting. <laughs> Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you. It was fun. Really appreciate it. I gave him wonderful recommends for antique shops now that he's a Oh,
0: that's nice. God, I must say hello to him, actually. I not.
3: I emailed him loads of little... little m- All my favourite secrets of where to go, where to get antiques. And um, so hopefully his house will be filled with treats.
0: Oh, wait, are we back? I didn't realise. <laughs> yeah, yeah, this is us back. <laughs> I was just uh, texting Alan's just,
3: Armistead. Alan, Alan's just texting Armistead. I wonder if he's got his, he probably his he? American Armistead. number anymore, does he? Tales of the City. Uh, I think it's probably still on Netflix. Go watch it. I would think so. He's an extraordinary man.
0: We've had a lovely time listening to it. Shall we do a little message to him right now? Yeah, go on then. Oh, he's not doing it. Armistead, it's Alan and... Christopher Sweeney. Who interviewed you for Homo Sapiens. And we're doing... We're right now recording the little bits that go either side of your interview. And we're actually talking to you on my text thing as we do it. This is like so meta. And we're talking about Armistead, if you remember, I sent you some antiques recommendations like Arding Market, and I want to know how you got on. So, and I'd like to see you and Chris Armistead and send you lots of love. I'm here to the end of March. Love you, bye. So, um... That was it. So how about how about this, everybody? Write to us at hello at homosapienspodcast.com. Oh, he's good. And um, send us, uh, what do you call it again? Uh, Agony your Uncles. Send us your Agony Uncle questions. Review send us, this your. show. Tell us what you think of us. Tell us what you think of Armstead. kind. And uh, also, if you'd like to buy a delicious T-shirt or sweatshirt, mm-hmm. which I am modelling on alancoming.com forward slash shop, just click on the picture of me and you'll be taken to like this place. What's it called? Scorched Earth, isn't it? Everbright. What? Um, it's... Uh... Event planning. Blah, blah. <laughs>
3: what is it? It's everpress.com forward slash homo sapiens. There we go. So uh, that's where you can get your T-shirts and uh-huh. jumpers. They're selling like hotcakes people, by the way. Are they?
0: But, and- see the, I see, but when you see a visual, do you, you'll see the colours and you'll see them on me. It's a white one and a grey one. There's a white T-shirt, grey sweater... You know, we might build out the collection as we go. Send us your photos of you in the t-shirts oh, yes. and jumpers. We'd love that. That would be nice. Yeah. And we can um, describe them. People, <laughs> well, we can just look at them <laughs> and go, "Oh, lovely!" Just now, be in touch with us. We're very needy. Just stay in touch. And also, if you want to win a
3: T-shirt, you can go to Apple Podcasts and review us, and we will pick review of the week on Homo Sapiens Extra.
0: Review of the week,
3: and you we get a free jingle from
0: Alan because that's what he's like. He's just contributing. giving, you know. Fair giving. Um, All right, it's been um, a pleasure. It's been lovely and uh, lovely to celebrate the darling that is Armistead Maupin. Good night, everybody.
2: Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Powered by Spirit Studios.